Well, good evening. Good evening. Welcome to Calvary Chapel. It's good to have you guys with us. This evening we are in James, book of James, and uh, we are in chapter 4, making our way through this book rapidly. James is a, a succinct writer. He writes in such a way that he just kind of gets right to the point, moves on to the next topic, so it sort of makes it easy to go through this book because it's organized in a wonderful way. He starts by talking about persevering faith, and then he begins about uh, or talking about proven faith. And we're in the midst of studying those lessons on proven faith and how faith is proven in our lives. And then uh, finally, when we, we sort of get to the end, we talk about a powerful faith, but we'll get there in a few weeks. This evening, though, we are in chapter 4, verse 1, where we'll be seeing that faith is proven, and it's proven through humility. It's proven through humility. Now, we talked about wisdom, but now we talk about humility. And God does want us to humble ourselves. He does want us to humble ourselves inwardly and outwardly. And so this evening, we're going to look at what that means, and uh, we're going to just go through James chapter 4, or at least the first 12 verses of this chapter, And ask ourselves, hopefully, in application as we're studying this, what does God want to do or want us to do in response to his word? What areas of our lives do we need to humble ourselves in? And uh, if you think you're humble, you're probably not. If you were to stand up and say, I'm very humble, then you'd be proud. So it's, it's one of those tricky things because... Most people who think they're humble or not, and, and most people who, who, who really may think, well, you know, I'm not sure I'm humble, they might actually be humble. So we're going to look at that this evening in James chapter 4, verse 1. But before we do, let's open in a word of prayer. Lord Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We know that you are a good and gracious God. We know that you always speak to us. You never fail to speak to us when we study your word together. Lord, when we prepare our hearts in praise and worship and and in prayer and we fellowship and then we come to your word, we know that you have a message for each and every one of us, myself included. We all need this evening to be spoken to in these dark days in which we live. Lord God, and especially in the area of humility, what that means, how to recognize those areas of our lives that need to change, and how we change, how we can allow you through the power of your spirit to change each and every one of us into your image, into the image of Jesus Christ. That's our prayer this evening, Lord. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's make sure everyone's awake. Amen? Amen. There you are. Well, let's look at verses 1 through 3. The first section is, that, is, is, is a theme of, of, of God wanting to change us or humble us, and he wants us to humble us or humble ourselves inwardly. He has called us to humble ourselves inwardly. What does that mean? That has to do with character, not actions. We'll talk about actions in just a minute, but character, that's what's in our hearts. And so we read in verses 1 through 3, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but you don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight, and you do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive 
because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. In this paragraph already, we're seeing that James is communicating to us that we're called to rely on God. We're called to rely on God to meet our needs and not to rely on ourselves. That's a very difficult thing, isn't it? To rely on God to meet our needs and not look to rely on ourselves? You might not think of that as a definition of humility, but in fact it is. A humble person, a person who's humble before God, relies on God to meet their needs and doesn't rely on themselves. A proud person says, I don't need God. I can rely on myself. I can do this myself. I don't need help. I don't need God's help. That's pride. But humility is the opposite of that. And so here we see that our sinful, selfish desires are actually the source of all of our relational conflicts. If you're a person that's in constant conflict with your coworkers, with your family members, with your spouse, with your friends, everyone you come in contact with is always a problem. It's just you're a difficult person. You don't think so, but you are, and everyone around you knows it, and you're the only one who doesn't seem to be in on the joke. Because everywhere you go, you have a problem, and you blame it on everyone else. Now, I'm not saying that's true of anyone here, but we've all experienced this probably for ourselves and maybe in the lives of others. If everywhere you go, you have a problem with everyone, then possibly, maybe even probably, you're the problem. And it takes a humble person to see that. A proud person never does. So your sinful, selfish desires, our sinful, selfish desires, are the source of all of our relational conflicts. So the first thing I would say is if you have a lot of conflict in your life, you might be proud. Now, let's talk about this because we read in verses 1 and 2 what causes fights and quarrels. Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but you don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. So you're constantly striving with people, constantly quarreling and fighting because you're never, ever satisfied. That's the person we're describing here. Now, I want to sort of lead you down the path that we take when we allow our selfish desires to get the upper hand. See, selfish desires, and follow me here because there's a few steps, there are five, but the first is this, that selfish desires can lead to an obsession over our own needs. If you feed your own selfish desires, then you obsess over your own needs. I need this. I need a new car. I need, I need a new dress. I, I need a new suit. I, I, I need this. I need that. I, I need more food. I, I need a, a bigger house, a nicer car. When you really just give yourself over to sinful, selfish desires, or even just selfish desires, making it all about you, then you obsess over your needs. It's all you ever really think about. You just think about, what do I need? Now, what happens when you obsess over your own needs, and this is the second thing, your obsession over your own needs can lead to feelings of desperation. Because if all you do is focus on the things you need, that means you're never focusing on the things you have. The blessings, that is. I mean, if you focus on the things you have, you're going to look at your life and you're going to say, wow, I have food. I have a place to live. It's real cold out there right now, and it's warm in here. You know, when I come home and I turn down the heat, you know, when we leave the house so that we don't heat the house unnecessarily, it's a little chilly when I get in the house. Then I turn it up, and very quickly... 
it becomes very comfortable in my house. And I always think the same thing. Thank you, Lord, that I live in a nice, warm home. I don't like to be cold. My wife and I were talking about this on the way here. I hate to be cold. I'm not a cold weather person. I don't don't do any of those cold weather things. Basically, for three to four months out of the year, I persevere until it warms up. And I'll warm up sometime in April. And until then, and that's why it's really toasty in here, and and I'm actually in a T-shirt because it's so warm up here, and I'm fine with it. I kept asking everyone, are are you comfortable? Is it too warm? Because if it is, we'll, we'll turn off the blowers. But I'm perfectly comfortable being in a sauna this time of year. Now, if all you do is obsess, if all you do is think about the things you need or you think you need, and you don't count your blessings, like a warm home, like a a refrigerator with food, like a stomach that's filled, like health, I hope this last year... Some of you have been unhealthy. Some of you have been sick. Some of you have caught that virus, and you've gotten better. Are you thankful? You're better. And if you didn't get sick, are you thankful you didn't get sick? There's so much we can be thankful for. But when you obsess over your own needs, that is the things you think you need or want, it can lead to these feelings of desperation. A person that unfortunately might overdose or take their own life is a person who spent all their time focusing on what they thought they needed and didn't have. It's not a person that sat around thinking about all they had and how their needs had been met. So remember now, selfish desires lead to an obsession over our own needs, but an obsession over our own needs can lead to feelings of desperation. So if you're a person that despairs, you you feel desperate all the time. It's a very horrible place to be, but it starts with your selfish desires. And now feelings of desperation, which are very awful things, it can also lead to depression, can lead to anxiety, can lead to other things. Feelings of desperation can also lead, unfortunately, to acts of desperation. That is, you feel desperate, therefore you act out in a very desperate way. Desperate people are dangerous to themselves and to others. When you read about somebody that, unfortunately, committed some type of workplace violence... You're almost always going to diagnose that person as feeling desperate, right? I mean, only a desperate person who, who acts out in a desperate way would do something like that, or maybe someone that was suffering some type of an illness or mental illness. But generally, that person, whoever they are, regardless of the circumstances, acted in desperation because they felt desperate. And it started with selfish desires, and it led to an act of desperation. Remember this, acts of desperation can never meet our deepest needs. Acting out in that way doesn't meet your need. Actually, it makes things worse, right? When you start to act out in that way, it only makes things worse. It doesn't better your situation. It it worsens the situation. And that's because only God can meet our deepest needs. So a humble person is the person that realizes that takes those selfish desires and puts them aside and serves God in the way that's being described here. And I like the way it's being described here in verse 3, because he says, when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasure. So even if you ask, your heart needs to be right with God. But fortunately, you don't have to fight. You don't have to quarrel. You don't have to battle within yourself. You don't need to kill or covet because you don't have what you want. 
It says, you do not have because you do not ask God. A humble person asks God for help. That's what we're aiming for. That's what we're looking to become, humble people. Because our selfish motives are the source of our unfulfilled desires. Our selfish motives. Our selfish motives are the source of our unfulfilled desires and our unanswered prayers. That is, when we don't get what we want, we become desperate, as opposed to surrendering our wants and our desires to God. Selfish motives, and listen, if you're motivated by self, you're in a heap of trouble. Because self will lead you down a dark path, as we've already talked about this evening. Selfish motives will lead us to selfish desires, and we've already seen where that gets us. But God's will is to meet our deepest needs according to his will, thank God, not ours. He wants to meet your deepest needs. But you probably, I probably, we probably don't even know what those needs are. But he knows what we need of before we ask. God will not fulfill our desires unless those desires will meet our deepest needs. And isn't that a good thing? Isn't that a good thing? A good parent doesn't give candy to their children for breakfast, lunch, and dinner because they know that that candy will hurt them. And not only that, nutritionally, it doesn't help them. It doesn't meet their needs. So as much as I think every child on earth would probably want to eat some type of sweet candy or cake for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, good parents know their child's needs. And so they say, no, no, and no. And then they say, this is what you need. Eat your carrots, eat your broccoli. And oh man, they get upset, but that's what they need. God is a good parent. Amen. He knows our deepest needs. He knows what we have need of before we ask. And when we don't know what we need, he provides it for us because he knows what we need. So keep that in mind. And remember, a humble person never sees, uh, excuse me, only a humble person sees this. A proud person never sees it this way. They see it as if they're denied what they deserve. I'm going to get mine, is their approach. God will not fulfill our desires unless those desires will meet our deepest needs. That's because he's a good God. Now, the next part of this section teaches us in verses 4 through 6 that we're called to give our hearts to God, not to give our hearts to the world. See, a person with selfish desires will do whatever they can do to get what they think they need or what they want. And they go to the world because the world promises a lot of things. Have you noticed? The world promises an awful lot of things. It promises happiness. You know, I'm going to say this. I was watching uh, television and a commercial came up. I've gotten to the place where I don't like to watch TV with commercials. It used to be that it was just annoying. Because I, I, let's get on with the movie. But then, you know, I kind of liked it because I got up. Maybe I used the bathroom. Maybe I want to make popcorn during a commercial. I didn't mind the commercials. But something strange started to happen. I think they hired Satan to start to film these commercials and write these commercials. Seriously, because the things that were coming on the commercials were worse than any, any of the things that, you know, I might have picked to watch on, on TV. And, you know, it's really upsetting now to see some of these commercials. I'm not even going to get into some of the things I've seen, but it's, it's really disturbing. I'll just mention one, though. Do you remember when online dating became a thing? Some of you young people probably don't know anything else, but there was a time probably, I'm going to say 20 years ago, 
when I don't really think that existed. Maybe it did 20 years ago, but maybe 15 years ago. Between 15 and 20 years ago, that was kind of a new thing. And I think the, one of the forerunners of this was eHarmony. You remember? I don't know. You know, now they have Christian Mingle and Christian Match and all these things. But eHarmony was like it. They were the gold standard. And they were sort of presented as a wholesome, sort of family way of thinking, conservative. I mean, at least it was presented that way in the commercials. Well, just this week, I saw an eHarmony commercial. And they were matching lesbians. I'm not kidding. And I'm like, wait a minute. I thought eHarmony was one of the good ones. And it upset me. Because it's so accepted. Listen, God loves all people. God loves homosexuals. We love people who are caught up in sin, but we call it sin because that's what the Bible calls it. It's sin. And there's lots of sins. That just happens to be one of them. But there are a lot of sins today that are, that are celebrated on TV, in the media. And so now eHarmony is promoting, and not even that they'll do that, but they're promoting it. And there are other commercials I've seen recently I don't want to get into. Because transgenderism is the other thing they're shoving down our throat. People are, 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 how can I say this? They're disturbed, and we celebrate them. And if you say that, well, you're a hater. Uh, Last time I checked, if a man wants to be a woman or a woman wants to be a man, there's something wrong. We love them. We care about them. They're confused. But you can't say that anymore. Well, I can. I will. I don't care. You know, so I look at that and I realize there's, there, there's, there's something wrong in the world. The world is promising things that, that, that it shouldn't be, and it does, and people buy into this. Little children start to think, well, I'm not happy as a boy. I want to be a girl. I'm not happy as a girl. I want to be a boy. Or I'm not happy with a member of the opposite sex. I want to be with a member of the same sex. And it's a discontentment that the world is preaching because our selfish desires are entertained and then the world comes along and says, yeah, I'll give you that. And so I called out eHarmony. Yes, I did. Boy, I was shocked to see that. But this is the world we live in now. And it's getting crazier and crazier every single day. So as I look at this, I realize we're called to give our hearts to God, not to give our hearts to the world. A person who's confused, a person who has needs, a person who has wants, a person who doesn't feel loved or is confused about who should love them or who they should love, should go to God in humility and not to the world in their selfish desires because the world is going to rip them off and destroy them. God will meet their deepest needs, and it won't be contrary to his word. Amen? It won't be. I know these are not popular things to say. That never stopped me before. I don't know why it would stop me now. You know, choosing the world and its desires instead of God and his desires is called spiritual adultery. Look at it. Verses 4 through 6. He says, You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. We talked about enemies of God on Sunday. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely? But he gives us more grace... And that is why the scripture says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble, quoting from Proverbs 3.34. See, this is about us being humble before God. A humble person has a lot of relational conflicts, yes, but a, a, excuse me, a, a humble person has good relationships. A proud person has a lot of relational conflicts, 
A humble person doesn't look to the world, but looks to God to meet their needs. But a proud person looks to the world and says, well, that doesn't meet my needs and defies God's word, looking for the things of the world to meet their needs. But that's spiritual adultery. That's what we learned here. A humble person receives grace from God, but a proud person is opposed by God. And a proud person looks at the word of God and says, that's okay, I want that forbidden thing. A proud person says, I I want the thing that God says is wrong. Or they say things like, well, God didn't really say it's wrong. Let's be be clear, the scripture couldn't be more clear on some of these subjects. A proud person will try to put words in God's mouth. A proud person will resist God in his word. A humble person, as we've said, a humble person looks to God to meet their needs. And when they have a need or a desire that's selfish and it's in conflict with God's word, the humble person says, that can't be good for me, even though I want that thing. You know, if you want to hit somebody because they anger you and you hit them, you've done wrong, right? And no one would disagree with that. I mean, the Bible says it, but that's just human nature, right? We know you want to hurt somebody in anger and you do it, well, you know you've done wrong. But if you want to be with a person that you're not supposed to be with, either because they're of the same sex or whatever, in a relationship like that, the world comes along and says, bravo, we're so progressive here. We're so open-minded, bravo. And yet the scripture says it's wrong. Why does the scripture say it's wrong? Because it'll hurt you. Because it's wrong. It's against God's word. It's against God's will. So isn't that interesting how, yeah, it's wrong to punch somebody, but it's also for the same reasons, wrong to defy God's word in relationships, and especially in sexual relationships. Now, I'm just sharing that because that's on my mind, and I, and I saw that recently and was greatly offended by what I saw. But having said that, there are a lot of things you can do that are contrary with God's word and his will. But know this, if you do that, you're a proud person because you're saying, I know better than God. I know better than God, but you don't know better than God. And God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That's the truth here today and always has been true. So choosing the world and its desires instead of God and his desires is spiritual adultery. Now, another thing we learn, as we've read here, we learn that it is impossible to love both God and the world. Have you got that? It's impossible to love both God and the world. John makes that clear in 1 John 2. Jesus says that as well in Matthew 6, verse 24. Because if we choose the world, we've chosen to break God's heart. He so loved the world, God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten son. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now, God loves the world. Don't, don't make any mistake. He loves the people in the world, but not the world systems. And if you love the world and the things that it offers and the world systems and all the sinful things that it promises and tries to deliver on, you don't love God. You have to make a choice. It's impossible to love both God and the world. And if we choose the world, we've chosen to break God's heart. So a humble person doesn't choose the world. A humble person chooses God. A proud person chooses the world and rejects God. And the point he makes in verse 5, which we've already read, is this, that the Holy Spirit who dwells in us, the Holy Spirit will not share you with another. He will not share you with another. 
Now, a, a rational, reasonable person in a relationship, specifically a marriage relationship, or any romantic relationship, has no intention of sharing the person they love with anyone else. And that language is used here. It says, do you think Scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely? Now, keep that in mind, that what he's telling us here is that the Holy Spirit will not share you with another. And that makes sense. He dwells within us by faith. And the Scripture tells us in Exodus 20 that God is a jealous God. He is. We belong to him. We don't belong to ourselves anymore. 1 Corinthians 6 makes that clear. Our lives are not our own. We've been bought with a price. We belong to Jesus Christ. And when James says the scripture says, he's not quoting a particular scripture from the Old Testament to support this spiritual truth. He's actually uh, supports this spiritual truth from the whole canon of scripture. Basically what he's saying is scripture says And while we're not quoting a particular verse, which you won't find in the Old Testament, all of Scripture attests to this truth that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely. That is, God is a jealous God. That's the gist of what's being said here. But he gives us more grace. Amen? He gives us more grace. How much is more? How much you need? You know, it's a wonderful thing when you go to your dad or your mom and you say, Mom, Dad... I want to go out this weekend. I don't have any money. Could you help me out? And they say, how much you need? I don't know how many parents actually say that, but it's sort of a pipe dream as a kid. You know, how much you need? Will 20 do it? You know, but that's how our father is. How much do you need? What, what do you need? Well, God knows what you need before you ask, but still ask. As we've already learned, a humble person asks, looks to God to meet those needs. And he gives us more grace. That is, how much do you need? See, God extends his all-sufficient grace to any that will humbly give their heart to him. You give your heart to God, and God will meet your needs. You give your heart to him, and God will meet your needs. That's what it means to be humble. You give your heart to God. Now, the proud, the proud are opposed because they refuse to submit to God. But the humble, the humble are are given God's grace because they are willing to submit to him. That's what it means to be humble. If you're a person that submits your life to God, then you can be described as humble. And he exalts the humble. He gives more grace to the humble, but he does reject and oppose the proud. What's interesting to me is James and Peter quote Proverbs 3.34 to support this spiritual truth. The truth is God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. That is, he meets the needs of those who submit their hearts to him. Okay, so we've talked about the inward change or the inward humility. All the things we've talked about here have to do with your relationship with God and the the way you think and, and how you approach God and what's in your heart. People can't see that. So you could fake it. You could go through your whole life, oh, you know, brother, I, you know, I, I pretending to be so humble and everything, but deep down inside, this is who you are. And we might not know, but God knows. Now we're going to talk about the fact that God wants us to humble ourselves outwardly. This has to do with how we treat others, how we deal with others. Because remember, the the two great commandments are what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And what? Love your neighbor as yourself. So if you're a humble person, it will impact your relationship with God. Actually, you'll have one. But then it will also impact your relationships with others. We've already talked about the relational conflict 
that happens in the life of a proud person, not a humble person, a proud person. Now we're going to see that God wants us to humble ourselves outwardly. This is all about what happens in our lives, through our actions, through our works. And it only proves that we have faith. It doesn't give us faith. Faith comes from God, and that's through a relationship with God. But remember that faith is proven through humility, proven to God through your humble nature before God, but also proven to others through your humble nature with others. And so we read in verses 7 through 10, this is a very important word, submit, because a humble person submits. A proud person rejects and will not submit. It says, submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. That's an encouragement, an exhortation to humble yourself outwardly, not just inwardly. Because you know what I've learned? If you say something or think something inwardly, but you never act on it, it isn't really true. What do I mean by that? You might say in your heart, you know, we really should help that person. They need help. But we'll see, as James talks about it, if, if you never really do anything about it, then I guess you really didn't think about it that way. It really didn't affect you the way you said, oh, we should help that person, but then you didn't help them. Well, maybe you felt that need to help them, but you didn't act upon it, so can you really say that you had a heart to help them? Not really. And basically, it says that you were just saying it, you weren't really doing it. There's a lot of people that say a lot of things, but don't do them. And I think it's really important that we understand the do part of it is really important. James talks about that in this epistle. Some of it we've looked at already. Don't, don't just be hearers of the world, the word, but doers of the word in the world. Don't just be hearers of the word, but doers of the word in the world. And so that's what we're talking about here. We're called to show humility before the Lord, but to do so as sinners. It means that we admit there are things that are not right in our lives. Only a humble person can do that. And as we've read verses 7 through 10, here's what I saw. First, a humble person willingly submits himself to God's majesty by his grace. A humble person submits. Submit yourselves then to God. Secondly, I see that a humble person victoriously resists the devil in God's strength, and he does so through faith. She does so through faith. Victoriously resists the devil in God's strength. That's what it means when we see it says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Now, that's the thing with the world as well, and even your own sinful nature. If you're humble, and you submit yourself to God, God is going to strengthen you to be able to resist the devil. I like that scripture. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Unfortunately, a lot of Christians entertain the devil. He knocks on the door. Yes, who is it? Satan. Satan always has a voice like that. But truthfully, a lot of times his voice is a lot more pleasant and we don't realize it. Satan, oh, come on in for a cup of coffee. You see, what happens when we open our lives and our hearts to Satan, the devil, and to the things of the world, we just sort of welcome them in and we're supposed to resist. That is, it's a knock at the door. Who is it? Well, it's the devil. I guess we have to say, you're not welcome here. 
resist the devil. And what does he do? Come around the back door sometimes, but you got to resist him. I'm, I'm like a sci-fi guy. I like fantasy and sci-fi. I like weird things. Um, I like to watch movies. I shouldn't admit this, but I like to watch movies and like horror movies and things. Not the bad, bad horror movies that have a lot of blood and guts, but occasional vampire movie, you know? And the one thing I remember growing up, when you, when you watched a vampire movie, they had these rules. They call them the rules of the vampire, you know? Like, can it cross or holy water stop? You know, and every movie's a little different, so you never know, right? But I remember the old movies I used to watch as a kid, the vampire couldn't come in your house unless you invited him in. Do you remember that? That wasn't true in some movies, maybe some of the more modern vampire shows, but back when I was a kid, that was the one thing. You had to invite Dracula or the vampire into the house. You know something? I really believe that's true when it comes to Satan. There's a lesson there. I really think you have to invite him in. And a lot of people do. He's sitting right next to you on the couch when you're watching Netflix. You know? Because you invited him in. Sometimes it comes in through the Netflix. Or through these crazy commercials. And I'm really recognizing that we are called to resist to resist. And we do that through God's strength. So you have to humble yourself to God. You have to submit yourself to God. And then you have the strength. He will strengthen you to resist the devil. Of course, the devil wants us to surrender to our sinful nature and to our pride. He's always there egging us on. He is working to bring failure in our spiritual lives. We're warring against spiritual wickedness in high places, Ephesians 6, 10 through 12 says. We have to put on the armor of God. And I encourage you this week, a little homework assignment. Look at Ephesians 6, 10 through 12. Look at the armor of God and ask yourself, am I suited up? You better be suited up these days. Because there are lots of fiery darts coming our way. And you need to resist. Okay, a humble person victoriously resists the devil in God's strength. But a humble person also boldly enters God's presence and does so with assurance. Look what it says. Come near to God and he will come near to you. The book of Hebrews makes it clear that we can enter boldly into the throne of grace in our time of need and find mercy and help and strength. We're told we can come into God's presence. But a lot of Christians, they're afraid of God's presence, or they, they're not comfortable in God's presence, so they don't long to be in God's presence. And as a, when I say God's presence, I'm simply meaning prayer, having a relationship with God. Yes, church, but more than just church. A relationship with God, coming into God's presence in prayer or in fellowship, in worship, in the study of God's word. And a humble person, though they're humble, they can boldly enter God's presence and they can do so with assurance because they know that it's not their own worthiness that allows them to enter God's presence. It's through Christ's worthiness. It's through Christ's sacrifice. So again, a humble person enters the throne of God. A proud person doesn't. Because they know in their own strength they don't belong to be there. They don't belong there. They shouldn't be there. Now, another thing we see is that a humble person receives forgiveness. And only a humble person receives forgiveness. Because we receive forgiveness by God's mercy, and we do that through confession. A humble person is a person that confesses their sins. A proud person never does. They make excuses. All right? So look what it says here, and I I like this. We've read it already. It says, wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. It's talking about the process of repentance through confession. Confession and repentance. You've heard this before, of course. 
that you can wash your hands in God's presence. That is, it's, it's, a, it's an analogy, it's a picture, but it makes its point. Confess your sins, you know. God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. We, we use that language in John's gospel. Excuse me, in John's uh, first epistle. Now, I think about it this way. When we talk about washing our hands, it's a little bit more than that. First of all, our lips. How about our lips? Our lips must be cleansed. Why? Because of our sinful speech. Our hands, yes. Our hands must be cleansed because of our sinful actions. And our hearts? Well, our hearts must be cleansed because of our sinful desires. And our minds must be cleansed because of our sinful thoughts. You know, I... I, Watched a YouTube video one time, and uh, the YouTube video was, you know, how to clean an engine, and how to, uh, you lift up the hood, and you, you pour water over certain parts of the engine, if the engine's really dusty or dirty, or how to clean that engine. And you have to do it very carefully, but, you know, the, the heart and your mind, this is the engine of who you are, and I think sometimes we need to really pressure wash, and how do we do that? through the washing of the word. That's what you're doing tonight. You're pressure washing your mind and your heart. You're cleansing. You're getting a good bath, a good scrub. And and I'll tell you, if you're in the word corporately, a couple times a week, in the word daily on your own throughout the week, you're constantly being cleansed. And so when we say wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded, we're not talking about the fact that you can cleanse yourself of sin. We're talking about the fact that when you confess your sins and you come to God, He can cleanse you. He can purify you. He can forgive you. Okay, so don't get the wrong impression. This isn't something you do. This is something you allow God to do. So our lips, our hands, our hearts, our minds, all need to be cleansed because of our speech, our actions, our desires, and our thoughts. Two more. A humble person laments his sinful condition. And he does so according to the truth of God's word. A humble person does that. A humble person laments. That is, you're not happy with who you are apart from Christ. You can rejoice in who you are in Christ. and We we should all do that. But a proud person looks at their life and says, I'm not that bad. In fact, I'm pretty good. Or, ain't I something? You know, people that think of themselves in that way are clearly not humble. So they they prove they don't have faith. But a humble person laments their sinful condition. Not in a way where they're constantly destroying themselves or degrading themselves, but in a way they understand who they are. And that's why verse 9 says, Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. See, that process is this. Grieving for our soul's fascination with worldly luxury and earthly comfort. Grieving that our natural inclination is to do the sinful thing. And mourning. Mourning for our soul's sinful nature and a rebellious pride. You see, our sin nature and our pride make it just too easy to resist God. So grieve that you have this fascination and desire for forbidden and sinful things. Mourn that you, you have a sin nature and that you, you're, you're proud and you resist God sometimes. Don't celebrate those things. Don't pat yourself on the back and say, ain't I something? Grieve, mourn, and wail. And I think the wailing is a wailing for the souls of others. Still caught up in the web of sin. 
certainly for ourselves, but a mourning and a wailing for others as well. Is that your attitude towards sin? I think most Christians who come to God on a regular basis recognize the need to be honest about who they are. When I was a kid, we grew up in a church where we would repeat the prayers in a prayer book every week. Some of that was a bit boring and repetitive, but some of it was very helpful. And I remember when David said, my sin is ever present with me or before me. And that's always stuck with me. And then we confess our sins because we've sinned against him in thought, word, and deed by the things we've done and the things we've left undone. Those are words I said about a hundred times. No, probably more than a hundred times as a kid. We sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by the things we've done and the things we've left undone. It's not a bad thing to think and to even say. We ask for forgiveness, but we recognize our sinful condition. So we grieve, we mourn, we wail these, over these things. And finally, a humble person cries out in God, or cries out to God in his desperation. And because he does so, he's saved by him. For whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be what? Saved, according to Romans 10.13. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Rather than lifting yourself up, humble yourself before God, and he will lift you up. It's a beautiful picture. Very beautiful picture. It's like someone coming before the sovereign or the king and bowing down, and the sovereign gets off their throne, reaches down, and lifts them up as a way of saying, I recognize your humility, but I'm exalting you in my presence. Imagine that. You come before God, you throw yourself on the floor, and you just, Lord, forgive me, and he reaches down and picks you up and lifts you to your feet. It's a beautiful picture, but notice it comes through humility. Because a humble person cries out to God in his desperation, and he is saved, exalted by him. Finally, in the last two verses here, in verses 11 and 12, yes, it's true, God wants us to humble ourselves outwardly. He does. And we've talked about what that means before God. But now let's talk about what it means before others. In verses 11 through 12, we read this, Brothers, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against his brother or judges him speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? Now he's particularly addressing the proud, arrogant person who's judgmental in the way they speak. See, a proud or judgmental person truly believes they're better than everyone else. And this pertains to a person of spirit, a person who allegedly a spiritual person, a person who goes to church, a Christian, loosely called. This person spends a lot of time looking down their nose in condescension upon everyone and sees themselves as better than everyone else. And he's saying, you can't do this. That's not, that's not a humble person. That's a proud person. And we're called to show humility toward the people around us as brothers. So this is part of the whole recipe, if you will, of proving that we have faith through humility. It's not just how we respond to God inwardly or even outwardly. It's how we respond outwardly toward others. A humble person, listen, a humble, listen, a humble person never slanders or speaks harshly about others. Peter makes this clear in his epistle as well. A humble person just doesn't slander or speak harshly about others. A proud person does. We must not violate God's law by proudly becoming a judge of the law. 
You know, I've been among certain gatherings of Christians, certain ministries, and it usually starts from the top and makes its way all the way down. I'm just going to say usually, not always, but generally what happens is the leadership, the pastor and the leaders, carry themselves in a way that's a little proud, let's be honest, spiritual pride. Legalism, you know. Uh, Every time the pastor tells a story, the hero of the story is him and how he's conquered sin. If you've been here for five minutes, you know that's not me. I just, I'm usually sharing my stories of how I failed, you know, my way to success, as Thomas Edison said, failing my way to success. Uh, But a lot of people that talk in ways they shouldn't are people that really believe they're better than everyone else. And sometimes you'll go to a church or a ministry and everybody's doing great. Everybody's like living perfect. So if you confess that like you you dropped an f bomb at work, you know, I I mean I assume you guys live in the world. You've probably heard that word before. I don't use that word generally, but we hear it. You know, so so maybe in a, in a given moment something happened. You said something. You used a curse word, and you say that people look at you like you know, oh my goodness, are you Satan? You know, are you demon possessed? And, you know, you start to develop this sort of culture where everybody's perfect, and if you're not perfect, you hide it because you don't want anyone to see you for who you really are. That is not a humble person. That's a proud person. Are you with me? So, you know, I don't like to be around legalists. I don't like to be around super spiritual Christians who do everything right all the time because I know it's not true, but they also do their best to sort of make you feel like they're, you're less than them. And that's what slander is. They slander. They speak harshly about others. Oh, you know, Tim, you know, he he was at the softball game and the softball bounced up and hit him in the lip and he cursed. That might actually happen, you know, to be honest with you. I mean, listen, we're human beings. And I remember a reason I use that example is (laughs) uh, the guy who was mentoring me back 30-something years ago, it happened to him and I felt so bad because, like, I think Pastor Greg Laurie was there that day and you know, he was the pastor that sent out our pastor to start the church in New York. And in front of everybody, he dropped, you know, a word. And, uh, you know, I'm just glad it wasn't me, to be honest with you. Uh, but, you know, <laughs> but I felt so bad for him because it could have been anyone. It could have been anyone. And, you're like, you know, all of a sudden we fall apart because we realize, oh, my goodness, that person. Oh, my God. Well, I wonder what worse sins they commit on a regular basis. But if we're honest with ourselves and we're humble, we shouldn't do that. We must not violate God's law by proudly becoming a judge of the law, judging others, being judgmental, um, being legalistic, which is to be judgmental. We must rather obey God's law by not speaking harshly about others. With the same measure you judge, you will be judged, Jesus told us in the the, uh, Sermon on the Mount. And finally, a humble person never judges or passes judgment on others. And I've already mentioned that scripture already. In verse 12, he says it this way. There is only one lawgiver and judge, and that's God. The one who's able to save and destroy. And you, who are you? Who are you to judge your neighbor? So when you take that position as judge, a proud, arrogant person, legalistic in your approach, you're actually the proud person. You're actually the one that God resists, not the humble person that says, oh, I'm sorry, Pastor, I shouldn't have said that word. You know, that person's humble. That person's forgiven and cleansed and draws nearer to God than the person who judges them for saying it. Are you with me? We must not condemn another person in our own pride. We must rather respect God's unique position as lawgiver and judge. And so, 
it is extremely important that we remain humble. We've talked a little bit about what that means, that our faith is proven both to God and to ourselves and also to others through humility. And so if we focus on being humble inwardly, you know what? The outwardly will be fine. If you're humble in your character, if you truly are humble before God, he'll lift you up and then you'll be humble before God, but you'll also be humble before God outwardly in the way you live. And, and perhaps just as importantly, you'll be humble in the way you live before others. And after all, the world needs to see that we're like him, like Christ. Humble, loving, caring, and it proves our faith to a world that desperately needs to see a true and sincere faith. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Heavenly Father, we thank you. Help us to recognize the need for this in our lives. And humility isn't just looking at our lives and speaking badly about ourselves. It's how we approach you and it's how we approach others. Help us, Lord, not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. Help us to live our lives for you and to live our lives for others, and to live our lives in a way that brings you glory and draws others to you. As we draw near to you, Lord, draw near to us and help us to draw others near to you as well. We ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.